Your Excellencies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is an immense honor for me tonight to, on behalf of the Temenos Academy, to welcome you all to this splendid Nehru Center. And before we start all proceedings, the Temenos Academy wishes to thank very deeply the Nehru Center for making it possible for us to be here tonight in such splendid venue. So a very huge thank you to the Temenos Academy for choosing and being received by the Gandhi. Before we start the proceedings tonight, I would like to call on uh, Professor Bushui, who has a very important announcement to make. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege and great honor uh, to have hand-carried this award for Catherine The award is from the Khalil Gibran Research and Studies Project and its International Advisory Board at the Center for International Development in Conflict Management, the University of Maryland College Park, the United States of America. This is the Khalil Gibran International Award. The only time that this award was given was to a Lebanese connected with the work of the museum and the restoration of the art of Khalil Gibran, which had it not been for his efforts would have been lost to posterity. This is presented to Kathleen Rain, great poet and founder of the Temenus Academy on this 21st day of June 2001. In recognition of her enduring influence on our times, inspiring us, guiding us, elevating our thoughts, ennobling our vision, and creating a circle of light, <coughs> love and unity open to all. I call upon Mr. George Zachem, who has been associated with the International Board of the Gibran Center in Maryland and who has rendered great services to us to present this to Miss Kathleen Ray. Thank <laughs> you. 
Now, Professor Bushrui has asked me to introduce an important Arab poet of our time, Antoine Rad, who is going to read in Arabic one of Amin Rehani's poems, Al Najwa, a supplication. Antoine Rad. يا ذا النور الدائم أمدني بقبس من نورك يا ذا القوة غير المتناهية ابعث منها في قواي أنا مبدأ الحياة الأزلية وعين الحب والقوة وإني حي فيك عليم بنجاوي أنت الحياة بأجمعها أولا وآخرا وإني لأحيا بك أنا مصدر الإدراك البشري وسأزيدك إدراكا بأنك جزء مني ساعدني اللهم لأجمع قوايا الروحية والعقلية والجسدية في سبيل الحق والحب والحكمة إني أيها الإنسان مصيخ إليك مطلق يديك منعم عليك أيها الينبوع السرمدي المنبعثة منه أنوار الحب المتدفقة منه مياه الحياة والعافية إني أفتح لك قلبي وعقلي وأبسط أمامك روحي فلا تحرمني فيض مكارمك ولا تبعدني عن ينابيعك إن ينابيعي لفي النجوم وفيما يربط النجوم بعضها ببعض وفيما ينشأ عنها من قوة وعافية إن ينابيعي لفي الحقول وفيما ينشأ فيها من الأزهار وفيما تبعثه من أريج الحب والجمال هي كلها أمام عينيك وطوع يديك يد العقل الكشاف ويد الروح الخالدة أنت إلهي ولا إله لي إلا أنت أنا نبض الحياة فيك وروح الحب فيك ونور الحكمة فيك كن عليها أمينا فهي الألوهية دينا ويقينا And here is Professor Bushrui's translation. Supplication. O immortal majesty, bestow upon me a portion of thy glory, 
O eternal light, assist me with a shaft of thy refulgence. O illimitable potency, imbue me with a measure of thy might. I am the source of immortal life, the fountainhead of love and power. I am alive in thee, attentive to thy supplication. Thou art the whole of life, both in the beginning and in the end, and I truly find my life in thee. I am the source of human understanding, and I shall increase thine understanding that thou art a part of me. O God, assist me to devote my powers, whether spiritual, intellectual, or physical, in the pathway of truth, of love, and of wisdom. O Son of Man, I in truth do hearken unto thee, accord thee freedom in thine actions, and bestow upon thee my grace. O Eternal Fountain, from whence well forth the lights of love, from whence gush forth the streams of life and well-being, I open unto thee my heart and my mind, and lay bare my soul before thee. Deny me not then thine overflowing bounties, nor remove me from thy copious fountains. My fountains are amidst the stars, and in that which binds them one unto another, and in the strength and health that grow therefrom, and in the flowers that blow therein, and in the scent they breathe of love and beauty. All these are before thine eyes and beneath thy grasp, the grasp of the discerning mind and of the immortal soul. Thou art my Lord, and there is no God besides thee. I am the pulse of life within thee, the spirit of love within thee, the light of wisdom within thee. Be thou faithful thereunto, for they are the reality of divinity, whether sought as truth or as religion. Your Excellency, my lords, ladies and gentlemen, it is a great personal honor for me tonight to be chairing this splendid meeting where Professor Bouchoui is going to address all of us. Um, it's, I have decided to, to re refer to his CV as it's well nigh impossible to give an adequate eloge to Professor Bouchoui. He is a legendary figure, a meteoric figure that comes to London and illumines our skies and our lives. And thank you very much for being here. Professor Bouchoui serves the world of academia, arts and letters in two capacities. As first and current holder of the Baha'i Chair for World Peace and as the founder and director of the Khalil Gibran Studies and Project. Both of these establishments are affiliated with the Center for International Development and Conflict Management at the University of Maryland, USA. The Baha'i Chair for World Peace is an endowed academic chair whose mission is to develop innovative methods of conflict management, global education, and spiritual awareness. The Khalil Gibran Research and Studies Project is devoted to the preservation of the legacy of Gibran, 
1998, Professor Bushui, the foremost authority on Gibran, along with Mr. Joe Jenkins, a noted British authority on ethics and comparative religions, joined forces to publish Khalil Gibran, Poet and Man. Professor Bushui is a distinguished author, poet, translator, and media personality. He has made contributions to interreligious understanding, conflict resolution, world order, human rights, environmental studies, English literature, Irish literature, Arab literature, Islamic and Baha'i studies. In addition to his books and articles on Gibran, he is widely recognized for his seminal studies in English of the works of W.B. Yeats and for his translations of Irish literature into Arabic and Arabic poetry into English. He was chairman of the International Association for the Study of Anglo-Irish Literature and formerly served as president of the Association of University Teachers of English in the Arab world. Professor Bushui was the first Arab national to be appointed to the chair of English at the American University of Beirut, a position he held from 68 to 86. Between 1982 and 1988, Professor Bushui served as senior cultural advisor to the President of the Republic of Lebanon. In this capacity, he formulated and implemented a range of cultural initiatives designed to promote national unity. As chairman of the Gibran Centenary Committee, he organized international activities focused on the theme of unity in diversity. And these were held in Beirut, London, Paris, and other major cities. In recognition of his many services to the government and people of Lebanon, and his distinguished international contributions both to Arabic and English literature, Professor Bushri was awarded the Lebanese National Order of Merit in 1988. Professor Bushri is the recipient of many other honors, including the Silver Medal of Merit of the Vatican, sponsored military and religious order of Constantine and St. George for outstanding services to interfaith understanding and Muslim-Christian dialogue. And of course, last but not least, among those many uh, prizes which I haven't mentioned, the prestigious London University Una Ellis Fermor Literary Prize for his work on W.B. Yeats and the Anglo-Irish Theatre. Since, since immigrating to the States, Professor Bushri has continued to serve the literary and cultural heritage of Lebanon organizing an international conference on Gibran at the University of Maryland in 1990, publishing a seminal study in Arabic entitled Lebanese Literature in English, Amin Rihani, Khalil Gibran, and Mikhail Nahimi. The work highlights the efforts of Rihani, Gibran, and Naimi to create an East-West ethos that transcended the barriers of religion, language, and politics, and spoke to all humanity in the language of unity in diversity. A critic writing in the Arab world's leading um, daily newspaper called the book Original and Groundbreaking Research. The professor's most recent published work is a spiritual anthology of Khalil Gibran. In delivering the Singh V. Temenos Interfaith Lecture for the year 2001, originally scheduled to be delivered by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Professor Bushri 
will share many of the insights included in his Arabic language book on Rehani, Gibran, and Naimi. The themes that Professor Bouchoui examines are highly relevant to our increasingly globalized world, including interreligious reconciliation, intercultural dialogue, and the role of literature and the arts in producing understandings that lead to peace. In particular, Professor Bouchoui offers a discerning resume of the life and work of the Lebanese-American thinker, Amin Rehani. Without due delay, the very, very much awaited and acclaimed Professor Bouchoui. Excellency Ambassador of Lebanon, Mr. Jihad Murtada, lords and ladies and uh, distinguished guests and dear friends, it is a great honor for me to stand here tonight, not only as your speaker, but as a fellow of the Feminist Academy. Uh, this is something that I really pride myself on, and I'm delighted to be here in the presence of my colleagues at the Academy and also the founder of the Academy, Catherine Green, Francis Warner, and uh, the very many friends that have worked for years to make, to realize his dream. Also, there are many people here, and I, I, I don't want to miss anybody, but uh, I have my co-author, uh, my friend, and uh, my partner in producing the book on uh, Khalid Gibran, man and poet, Mr. Joe Jenkins, who's here, and I'm delighted that he was able to come. I have my dear friend and colleague, uh, the man who always sets me right, Professor Miles Bradbury, who flew from the United States specially to attend this lecture, was here with us as well. And I have, of course, what really gladdens the heart of every true teacher, one of, one of my students here, Mr. Murphy, who comes from the States, who just finished a class with me on the spiritual heritage of the human race. It was a great class, and I learned a great deal from my students. And, one of them is here, and I'm really, really particularly honored, and I want to thank him for having turned up. Uh, there are, uh, of course, there is the poet Antoine Raab, who read the poetry here, who has kindly agreed to come and read the poetry. Also, my friend Tom Durham, whom we have in the past performed together, because this, I consider this really more of a performance than really anything else. And I hope that uh, this evening I shall not... Uh, stimulate you intellectually, but uh, gladden your heart and bring some joy and happiness. Over the centuries, it has often been observed that the East exercises a remarkable fascination for the West. There has long been a presence in Western literature, for example, of a poetic image of Lebanon with myriad associations, connotations, nuances and suggestions. A mosaic made up of hundreds of small pieces, a kaleidoscopic representation. This poetic image includes Lebanon the land, Lebanon the mountain, Lebanon the cedar tree, Lebanon the people, Lebanon the melting pot of the world's religions, 
including the religions of passion, of ancient classical faiths, and of so-called pagan manifestations of gods and goddesses. It is a rich image that has a unique significance in Western poetry and is frequently suggestive of ideas enriched by tradition, by legend and myth, as well as by the vast historical process that touches the destiny of nations. In English literature, these scattered images of Lebanon are found in the works of a wide variety of authors throughout the centuries. Foremost among these works is the King James Bible, which contains over 60 references to Lebanon by name, over 70 references to the cedars, numerous references to places in Lebanon such as Tyre and Sidon. In the Bible, Lebanon's name is a synonym for beauty as in the Song of Solomon. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. In Psalm 104, we read, and it is recorded, that the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he hath planted. Next to the Bible, the most revered works in English are, of course, those of Shakespeare, whose play Pericles, Prince of Tyre, is set in Lebanon. The back cloth of Tyre plays an important part in the work. The bard's poem, Venus and Adonis, too, although not actually mentioning the country, is closely associated with Lebanon. There is also Robert Browning, whose stirring play, The Return of the Druzes, places Mount Lebanon at the heart of the drama. Browning depicts the Lebanese as an independent, free, and heroic people of indomitable will who seek refuge in the mountain, an inspirational and character-molding environment symbolizing strength and fortitude. And even an author such as D. H. Lawrence, inspired by biblical descriptions of the country, succeeded in capturing its atmosphere, the myth, the image, and the ideal in his short novel, the man who died. Many of those English-speaking writers and poets who touch on Lebanon in their work have clearly glimpsed the inner as much as the outer beauty of the country. In 1853, for instance, Colonel Charles Henry Churchill prophetically envisioned the vital role that Lebanon would soon play in breaking down the barriers between East and West. When Mount Lebanon ceases to be Turkish, it must either become English or else form part of a new independent state, which, without the incentives to territorial aggrandizement or the means of military aggression, shall yet be able to maintain its own honor and dignity, and more especially to promote the great object for which it will be called into existence, for which indeed, by its geographical position, it will be eminently qualified, that of creating, developing, and upholding a commercial intercourse in the East, which shall draw together and unite the hitherto divergent races of mankind in the humanizing relations of fraternity and peace. Colonel Churchill's contention that Lebanon might properly become English territory reflects the vanity of his time and audience, but his observations are thereby rendered no less perceptive. Perhaps no one captures the essence of Lebanon as a unifying force in a diverse global community more beautifully and eloquently than three of her sons who, like Lebanon herself, occupy a unique place in both Eastern and Western culture. Amin Rihani, Khalil Gibran, and Mikhail Naimi, who were all friends and colleagues, were responsible for a groundbreaking body of work written in English at the dawn of the 20th century. Each of these writers possessed their invaluable ability 
to communicate to both the East and the West the unique position held by their homeland, Lebanon, in an era of industrialization, nationalism, and the overwhelming sense of anxiety that became a trademark of their modern age. Lebanon forms the heart of the Middle East, an area sanctified by the three major monotheistic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, and described by Arnold Toynbee as the round point of history. Ancient traditions of seafaring and trade made the Lebanese skillful in communicating with other peoples and global in their outlook, even before that concept was common currency. Yet Lebanon also knew the tragedy of war, for it had been a darkling plain, in words of Matthew Arnold, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. For Rehani, <coughs> Gibran, and Naimi, much of what they gave to the world, they owed to their homeland, unique in so many ways, particularly in its geographical position and its mixture of ethnic groups and languages. Lebanon today speaks in three languages, Arabic, English, and French. In this respect, it is the only country in the world that speaks in these three languages. Of course, one could perhaps draw the example of Switzerland here, but it's completely different, take my word for it. <laughs> this was the Lebanon of the sacred cedar grove, the dreaming ruins of the temple of Astarte, of the lofty snow-capped mountains soaring into heaven. Uh, most of all, perhaps, they were indebted to Lebanon for their awareness of the inestimable blessings that flow from the harmonious coexistence of different peoples and faiths, as well as vivid apprehension of the catastrophes that must inevitably result from the breakdown of such coexistence. Rihani, the thinker and prose writer, Naimi, the mystic philosopher, Gibran, the poet, all realized the eternal truth of unity and diversity and expressed it in their respective works. In the book of Khalid by Amin Rihani, in the book of Mirdad by Naimi, in the Prophet by Khalil Gibran. For these writers, the East and the West, the pagan and the Christian, the ancient and the modern, the past and the present, came together to reaffirm their faith in the unity of being, in the image of the eternal rebirth of beauty and passion in Adonis, joined forces with the message of Christ, who taught selfless love, so that this in turn confirmed them in their belief in the healing power of universal love. They all attempted to introduce into the main fabric of these works a Christian-Muslim synthesis, emphasizing Reconciliation between Islam and Christianity. In 1910, Gibran Rihani and their colleague Yusuf Al-Hwayek met here in London and drafted detailed plans for a cultural renaissance in the Arab world. Among these plans was one for the founding of an opera house in Beirut, the outstanding features of which was to be two domes symbolizing 
the reconciliation between Christianity and Islam. In a period of history, sometimes characterized as the age of anxiety, when anger, disintegration, corruption, and disorientation and anarchy were the order of the day. These writers stood alone emphasizing the importance of reconciling reason and passion, of balancing the physical and the spiritual, of perceiving the divine order that is inherent in all things on earth and in heaven and in conforming to its bidding. They saw the body of the world as an outward manifestation of the divine essence. To commune with nature, the link that binds us one to another, was for them akin to a religious experience. If nature was a uniting force, all three writers could perceive only too well the man-made characteristic of those other forces that divided peoples from one another. In the book of Mirdad, Naimi included a colloquy on war and peace held between his character Mirdad and a prince. The chapter is especially timely in view of Lebanon's history of conflict. Asked by the prince what a ruler should do when his realm is threatened by a neighbor with whom he desires peace, Mirdad replies, I fight, but not your neighbor. Fight rather all the things that cause you and your neighbor to fight. This clear and impartial advice applies equally to East and West, pointing the way to lasting reconciliation between them through the words of a member of a peace-loving nation, which had never taken up arms to impose its will on others. Rather, rather than taking pride in military conquest, as its neighbors did in ancient times, Lebanon was already spreading the ideal of peaceful and friendly coexistence based on shared interests. I think I'm absolutely right in saying that the recent unfortunate period in the history of Lebanon was never the creation of the Lebanese themselves. It was what we call in English a vicarious war. It was others fighting their own battles on Lebanese territory. This is the whole truth, the whole truth. And had it been any other nation, most probably, it would have never survived. The Lebanese are unique. They're indomitable, indestructible. It is their spirit that keeps them alive. They've seen army come after army. They've seen civilization after civilization. They've seen everybody go through Lebanon. Lebanon remains, the armies vanish. This is the true story. This is the moral lessons of history. At the heart of Lebanon's mission in the world, as Rihani, Gibran, and Naimi understood that mission to be, was the creation of a model inter-religious society, a multi-faith community in which diversity of belief is celebrated and respected by all confessional parties. These three writers, therefore, constructed a system of thought contending that no religion represents a final revelation of God to man and emphasized the relativity of religious truth and proclaimed that divine revelation is continuous and that religious experience is progressive and that in essence all religions are one. They believed that the way to human salvation is a new perspective, a belief in a spiritual unity and understanding of religious truth which is holistic and universal. Hence, Gibran's words, 
If we were to do away with the non-essentials of the various religions, we would find ourselves united and enjoying one great faith and religion abounding in brotherhood. Similarly, I may observe... If all those belonging to a religion were to understand its essence and ultimate purpose, the world would have but only one faith. Rihani also addressed this theme when he wrote, I counsel you to heed every new light, and know that a heart full of many lights is better than a mind full of much knowledge. For in each one of the world faiths there is a light that shines for a while, and that while may extend to three or four or five thousand years, but no light vanishes before a new light appears in its place. These three writers were all Christians. Two were Maronites, and the third was a Greek Orthodox who attended a seminary in Russia and was almost about to become a priest. Yet they were entirely comfortable in considering themselves as heirs to an Arab Muslim cultural heritage. Similar cases occur in Europe, where non-Christians partake of and contribute to a culture that is essentially Judo-Christian in character. Gibran, Naimi, and Rihani accepted and celebrated the greatness of Islam within a context of unity and diversity. As a matter of fact, they had no difficulty in recognizing Islam as a true religion and the Quran as the word of God. They demonstrated that one could be Christian in faith, yet inextricably linked to Islam in both language and cultural history. Each one of us who follows a different religion, but whose language is Arabic, which is the language of the Holy Quran, no doubt, whether he likes it or not, works within the context of an Islamic cultural context. As a meeting point between East and West, a bridge between the ancient and the modern worlds, and the home of many diverse ethnic and religious groups, Lebanon was and remains a pluralistic society. Rihani, Gibran, and Naimi recognized that Lebanon continues to have many lessons to teach and to learn from the West. In particular, Lebanon can learn from the West's record of democracy and individual rights, but it can also teach the West values of honor, generosity, hospitality, and spiritual ethics. All three authors hope that, at the 20th century progressed, both sides would grow more tolerant and mature so as to be able to work together to bring about a new era of concord and understanding of the unity and diversity of humankind and its potential for the establishment of a lasting dialogue between its members. These three writers conducted a dialogue with the West in English, even as they communicated with their Arab brethren in Arabic. To their Eastern audiences, they spoke on behalf of Western traditions, of democracy, and they were possibly the earliest voices to speak to both the East and the West simultaneously about the importance of human rights, women's rights, sustainable environment, interracial harmony, and a culture of peace. Perhaps there is no finer proponent of this dialogue than Amin Rihani himself whose motive in all he wrote was to promote peace and encourage a proper understanding between East and West, between Islam and Christianity, and to reconcile tradition with modernity. In the year 2001, designated by the UN as the year of dialogue among civilizations, it is appropriate for us, therefore, 
to examine and reflect upon the life and works of Amin Rihani. Today, our institutions of global governance are, at long last, recognizing the, importances, the importance of approaches Rihani and his colleagues were advocating as long ago as the early 20th century. The modern concept of a global ethic was enthusiastically promoted by Rihani, Jubran, and Naimi. To a significant degree, their lives and works represented a confluence of cultures. Arabs who were fully conversant with the West, the intellectual origin of their message is found in the spiritual traditions of as far places as of India and China. These three thinkers imbibed from a spring of knowledge founded by the transcendentalists of America, the English romantic poets, and above all, by the Sufi luminaries of Arabia and Islam, such as Ibn al-Arabi, Ibn al-Farid, and the great Persian poet Jalal al-Din al-Rumi. In other words, these Lebanese writers were proponents of that timeless and everlasting tradition, which is the foundation of all our thinking and philosophy in the Temenus Academy, namely the perennial wisdom. In an essay entitled At-Tasahul al-Dini, Religious Tolerance, Rihani observed, How wonderful it would be for Westerners and Easterners if they were to learn from each other what <coughs> is beautiful in their faiths, proper in their traditions, sublime in their arts, just in their rules and laws, and perfect in their manners. The essence of that which is true and perfect in the cultures of the East and the West, unified and synthesized, is the only remedy for the religious, social, and political maladies of our time. Western man can then return to God, while Eastern man can reduce much of God's burden. It is indeed remarkable that the true spirit of Arab civilization was always fully understood by these great poets, if not by the political leaders of their time, whether they were Arab or non-Arabs. The literary admirers of Arab civilization and culture included Goethe in Germany, Yeats in Ireland, and the English poets for whom Arabia was a reminder of their own Elizabethan world before the birth of industrial England. These writers were drawn to the mystery of Arabia the intelligence of the Arabs and their wisdom, their unique qualities as a people and something special about their mystical bent of mind that was never too mystical to be realistic. Browning's words seem to summarize this kind of fascination with the Arabs and their civilization. Speaking the Greeks' own language, <coughs> just because your Greek eludes you, leave the least of flaws in contracts with him. While since Arab law holds the stars secret, take one trouble more and master it. Sordello, Book 4. Good advice to follow. Um, I am at the moment uh, currently working on a book entitled uh, The Wisdom of the Arabs. It will be the first of its kind in English. Uh, my publisher, uh, both my publishers, uh, Mr. Novin Dostar, Mrs. Julia Dostar, who are here in the audience tonight, uh, have had this stroke of genius to produce a book like that. And in fact, uh, it is, I can tell you, the excitement, the joy, the happiness, the wonder, and the amazement at this rich tradition of wisdom and of understanding of the world, the real world, that the Arabs had. And most probably, it's a reminder to us Arabs that we most probably have to go back to these wise 
pre precepts of the past to find the future. However, I'm not going to make any um, sermons here tonight, but uh, this was by, by passing. Uh, my difficulty is not uh, in finding the material. My difficulty is what to choose. In the 10th century AD, the prose writer At-Tawhidi, a shrewd judge of character with a keen sense of humor, placed the following remarks into the mouth of the Persian scholar Ibn al-Muqaffa in his book entitled Kitab al-Imta' wal-Mu'anasa, the book of enjoyment and good company, and here the translation is that of John Damis. The Arabs are the most intelligent nation because of the soundness of natural endowment, correctness of thought, and acuteness of understanding. In his study entitled The History of Islam, Robert Payne captured beautifully the driving uh, energy, exuberance, and dynamism uh, that have allowed the Arabs to attain glorious heights, but also at times led them astray. Payne's observations, published in 1959, display the style and preoccupations of his day, but they remain remarkably pertinent. Though schooled in Greek philosophy, Arabs have never completely accepted the fundamental tenets of Western logic. To them, an inquiry into the nature of virtue and goodness is meaningless, since all virtue and all goodness come from God. As our minds move by slow, progressive steps up a rational ladder, as the Chinese mind moves in great sweeping circles, so the mind of the Arab moves in sudden, short-paced spurts of remarkable power and energy, illuminating the darkness with a quick and blinding light, then retiring to the dark again to prepare for another explosive outburst. The greatest of Arab thinkers have been freebooters and raiders of the spirit who did not take easily to established laws, even the laws of their religion. They had the failings of freedom fighters. They moved like lightning, but often found themselves in unmapped territory where they were at a loss to recognize the castles they were attacking and so attacked all of them indiscriminately and sometimes they hurled their most potent weapons at shadows. They were men without patience. They must know all or give up the game. To read Al-Ghazali or Ibn Arabi is to see men making war on heaven nakedly, having thrown their weapons away as unworthy encumbrances in the contest. Nakedness, indeed, was the weapon they prized above all others as being the most dependable, since it is the ultimate weapon shared by all alike. They insisted upon giving a place to the human body and human passions. Plato's bloodless categories were therefore foreign to them, and they moved more easily in the less rarefied world of Aristotle. Only an Arab philosopher, and that the greatest, would dare to say that man comes closest to God in the embrace of a woman. Today, with the Arab world awakening at last after centuries of sleep, it is more than ever necessary to come to grips with the Arab mind. There is a sense in which they are more dangerous to our peace than the Russians. To the uncommitted nations, they speak with the authority which comes from naked conquest. They speak as man to man, proudly, contemptuous of our mechanical marvels, even when they enjoy them. For to them, God is so much greater than all our foolish strivings that they regard the power of the bomb as insignificant in comparison with the power of God. And they have no illusions about material progress. Their strength lies in their humanness. They are ruthless and at ease in a world where we are increasingly restless 
and incapable of decision. Hamlet still walks our fortress walls, but an Arab Hamlet is unthinkable. However you interpret this passage, with all its ironies and uh, puns and, uh, and whatever a non-Arab makes of this, most will agree that the term Arab has acquired such a variety of meanings and connotations that it is, it, its true definition has become blurred and needs uh, restating. The word Arab today no longer refers only to the Bidu or nomadic tribes of Arab origin living in the desert, nor exclusively to their descendants of pure Arab origin. At present, the term defines anyone who lives in an Arab country, speaks the Arabic language, possesses an Arab culture, and shares in the common heritage of the Arab nations. Arab identity may be divided into three main categories. The Arab intellectual heritage, a modern Western heritage, we must never forget the Arabs were in Spain for over 700 years and communicated with Europe for as long as we can remember. So it's the Arab intellectual heritage, a modern Western heritage, and a heritage of varying social ideologies. In other words, the Arabs of today are of mixed blood, having evolved and integrated with other races and cultures. There is uh, a saying of the Prophet Muhammad uh, in which he says, that Arab nationality really is the tongue. Whoever speaks the language is an Arab. This is very true of our civilization throughout history. Persians, Greeks, Romans, Indians, whoever spoke the language and entered the domain of that civilization was considered an Arab. Beyond the geographical proximity, economic interdependence, and a shared history, the poet Abu Tammam aptly summed up the key link that binds all Arabs. Blood relationship we may lack, but literature is our adopted father. The Arabs had long ago influenced the world intellectually, politically, and spiritually. They had contributed to European rationalism through the writings of Averroes, uh, his real name, really, it's in Latin, Averroes, but his real name is Abdul Walid Muhammad ibn Rushd. They had introduced the concept of nationhood, and directly or indirectly from the shackles of theology and fanaticism. In the 20th century, they made a material contribution by means of oil, a new currency, and a new source of wealth. At this juncture in history, with the world poised to enter the age of space and modern technology, the Arabs again held the key to the new world, the doors of which were opening one after another. The Arabs were facing the greatest challenge in their history. Their new oil wealth would mean either bliss or disaster. At this important time in the history of the Arabs, Amir Rihani appeared on the, sense, on the, on the scene as their ambassador. And in his life and thought, he was the archetype of the modern Arab, aware of his place in history and immense cultural wealth of his people. Without doubt, he was the most distinguished representative of Arab civilization in the 20th century. As an essayist, novelist, philosopher, and poet, Amin Rihani believed passionately in the oneness of the world's religions and the brotherhood of all nations. 
virtually able to claim dual nationality of Lebanon and the United States. He assimilated two widely different, differing cultures to an extent perhaps never achieved before him. Profound though his grasp of the modern West was, Rihani never lost sight of the rich cultural heritage into which he was born and which was bequeathed to the world by Arab civilization. Politically, he was a dedicated liberal, but his idealism was tempered with a very practical recognition of the need for an ordered, disciplined society. And whilst firmly opposed to blind fanaticism, extremism, and bigotry, he always retained a healthy respect for tradition. Although a pioneer in more than one field and blessed with a highly charismatic personality, Amir Rihani was modest and sought no personal glory in his undertakings in the service of humanity. He believed in striving tirelessly for the causes closest to his heart and the impeccable integrity, sincerity and honesty which characterized everything he said or did is illustrated by his Arabic motto, Qul kalimataka wamshi, say your word and go your way. Among his many accomplishments, he was the first Arab traveler of modern times to describe the heart of Arabia and communicate to the world the great spiritual, moral, intellectual, literary, and material treasures of what he called the most fertile region in history. He enriched English with translations of such Arab poets as Imru'ul Qais and Abu Ala al Ma'arri, as well as enhanced his own culture by transmitting the ideas of Carlyle and the American transcendentalists in his Arabic writings. He was the first Arab to write and publish a novel in English, and he was a thinker who firmly believed in his country, Lebanon, and saw it in the context of the great Arab heritage as he saw the Arab world in the wider context of the family of nations. He regarded himself as the beneficiary of the rich synthesis of Christian Muslim traditions and was fully aware of the larger perspectives of a global culture and civilization in which peace would prevail and harmony exists between East and West. Thus, he may be seen as moving within three concentric circles, Lebanon, the Arab world, and the world at large. It is nearer the truth to say that Trihani's America, American experience reminded him of his Arab cultural heritage, as the author himself states quite explicitly in his introduction to Muluk al-Arab, published in 1924. As a child, I knew little about the Arabs, and what little I knew was derived from what mothers tell their children about the Bedouin in an attempt to frighten them into behaving properly. Shh, the Bedouin is here. Consequently, when I arrived in America, I had nothing but fear for those whose language I speak and whose blood runs in my veins. The only other culture I knew anything about was the French, and this only superficially, my information being derived from the French school I attended in Lebanon, which taught me that France was the greatest nation in the world, the noblest, the richest, the most advanced, the center of civilization, beauty, and light, a peacock among nations, strutting majestically among the domestic fowls of the world's barnyard. After arriving in America, I became an admirer of the vitality of the American people, of the freedom they enjoyed in their thought, speech, and deeds, but at the same time grew to fear their intense materialistic activity, their acquisitiveness. Though retaining his interest in French literature, other aspects of French culture ceased to interest him, and gradually 
Even the literary works of France left him dissatisfied as he sensed the gulf which existed between their abstract speculations and the hard materialistic world in which he lived. Turning to English literature, however, he found a measure of solace, recognizing in the work of major English writers moral and social values more refined than those upheld by the society in which he lived, and a temperament more akin to his own. It was an American, however, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was responsible for encouraging Rihani's interest in English literature. Emerson first introduced him to the 19th century English writer, Thomas Carlyle, who was to become an important influence on Rihani's subsequent development as a writer and thinker. Paradoxically, it was Carlyle who first instilled in Rihani a desire to know more about the Prophet Muhammad. He must have read Carlyle's essay on the Prophet in Heroes and Hero Worship. In this manner, he became determined to find out more about his own people and their culture. Rihani's interest in the Arabs was further encouraged by a reading of Washington Irving's Alhamra. And so it was, he says, that his mind, shaped by the influences of America, France, and England, was blended with something of the Oriental imagination. He began to dream of the glory of his past heritage and to find in it sustenance for his life in the present. Rihani developed the art of the essay in modern Arabic and created it as a pliable literary vehicle that had far-reaching influence on the development of modern Arabic prose and journalism. His American education was a crucial factor in this process since both the form and the content of his essays bear the unmistakable influence of the transcendentalist Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau whom he read avidly in his teens. Rihani was both a romantic and realist. On the one hand, he firmly rejected the ills of society and was both a literary rebel and a lover of nature and of all things simple. On the other, he talked, he, he talked not of vague escapist solutions, but of credible aims and objectives and championed not idealistic causes, but science, technology, and progress. An intellectual and practical stance underpinned by a vision and an intuition kept him in firm touch with the real needs of his people. As a critic, he expressed the utmost contempt for linguistic scholasticism and for romanticism in the form of woolly sentimentality. He reserved his most vitriolic attacks for the Arab neoclassicists and was one of the first to call for socially committed poetry. A poet, he argued, should be fully involved with the lives of those around him, as in the noble Bedouin tradition established long before the advent of Islam. In his Arabic writings, he warned his own people and his Arab brethren against the many dangers threatening them and the ambitions of outside powers with regard to their territorial integrity. He appealed to them to be wary of the oil wealth that was about to descend on them. He warned them against disunity and encouraged them to consolidate and develop their spiritual and moral values, as well as their human and material resources. And he bitterly attacked religious prejudice, political extremism, and divisive tribal loyalties. He urged them to unite in promoting philanthropic spirit, in reforming and modernizing their societies so that the Arab people would be able to play an important role in the modern world without sacrificing the moral and spiritual heritage 
the, the moral and spiritual heritage of their past, which has been their mainstay since the dawn of history. He also tried to acquaint the Arabs with the best in Western society, especially the traditions of personal freedom, intellectual liberty, cultural achievement, and the application of modern, modern techniques in social and economic functions. If Rihani's essays were influenced by the American Emerson and Thoreau, his use of free verse owes even more to another American mentor, Walt Whitman, as he himself was the first to acknowledge. The prose poem was the ideal vehicle for a young writer eager to express himself in verse, but impatient with the strictures of Arabic meters, which his late education in Arabic prevented Rihani from using well. A man of Rihani's caliber clearly needed to speak to the world in more than one language. In English, he was able to reach a vast readership, and in his writings, he consistently defended the right of the Arab world to live with dignity, freedom, and independence. Rihani never tired of explaining the important contributions of the Arab people to human history, and he proclaimed the desire of his own people to reach an understanding with the Western world in order to build a global society. He warned his brethren in the West that unchecked materialistic tendencies would undermine freedom, peace, and noble values of Western society. He singled out greed as being the greatest enemy of all. Rihani invited Westerners to discover the spirituality of the East, the great tradition inherent in Eastern civilization. As an advocate of such spirituality, he stressed without rancor the need for the West, finally, to show justice towards the East. Like few men in history, he was able to view the East and the West in parallel, never seeing the one to the disadvantage of the other. He endeavored always to bring the virtues of both into consonance. Not only was Rihani the first Arab to write a novel in English, he was also the first Arab to write English verse. The most notable of his English writings are the novel, of the, the, novel the Book of Khalid, which influenced many Arab authors, including Khalil Gibran and Mikhail Naimi, his excellent translations of the verse of Abu Ala al-Ma'arri, his own Sufi poetry included in A Chant of Mystics and Other Poems, his social and reformist essays in The Path of Vision, <clears throat> and his matchless travel trilogy, Ibn Saud of Arabia, his people and his land, around the coast of Arabia, <clears throat> an Arabian peak and desert travels in Al Yemen. I must drink a glass of water. Sorry about that. <clears throat> I get terribly excited about these things, and uh, my wife tries to calm me down, and uh, it is to no avail whatsoever. As a student of Yeats, I always uh, was influenced by his um, striking remark. He said, all is passion. If there is no passion, I don't speak. So, <clears throat> Rihani's novel in English, The Book of Khalid, which was illustrated by Khalil Gibran, was the forerunner of the latter's most famous work, The Prophet. It's a philosophical and largely autobiographical work of fiction that represents a passionate plea for the reconciliation of the material and spiritual of East and West of Christianity and Islam. Like many a pioneering endeavor, it achieved little success in itself, having perhaps as many defects as virtues. Yet this extraordinary book, 
remains possibly the most complete account in English of the psyche of the modern liberated Arab. Rihani's protagonist, an irreverent and at times blasphemous young Arab from Baalbek named Khalid, follows a circular path which takes him from Lebanon to America, finally back to the Middle East. His westward journey, which he undertakes with a companion named Shakib, is compared to the way of the cross. The voyage to America is the Via Dolorosa of an immigrant, and the port of Beirut, the verminous hostilities of Marseille, the island of Ellis in New York, these are the three stations thereof. The three sections of the book correspond to the three levels of the quest for spiritual awareness, hence the dedication to my brother man, my mother nature, and my maker God. If you want to equate this with the platonic, the good, the beautiful, and the true, then you can work it out which is the good, which is the beautiful, which is the true. Once in New York, the wonder-working, wealth-worshipping city, the two young men make their way to the Syrian quarter where they rent a room in a cellar as deep and dark and damp as could be found. This image of a flooded cellar is not Rihani's final word on his adopted land, though his critique of the country is undoubtedly devastating. He nevertheless senses the great potentialities of America. Writing during what he saw as the tub-thumping, jingoistic years of Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, Rihani was shocked and appalled by the crudeness and cruel materialism that he saw around him. But the central character of his novel, Finding Himself Behind Bars, writes a letter which looks ahead to an America that might yet fulfill its gigantic promise. The Americans are neither pagans, which is consoling, nor fetish-worshipping heathens, they are all true and honest votaries of Mammon, their great god, their one and only god. And is it not natural that the demiurgic dollar should be the national deity of America? Have not deities been always conceived after man's needs and aspirations? Change the needs and aspirations of the Americans, therefore, and you will have changed their worship, their national deity, and even their government. And believe me, this change is coming. People get tired of their gods as of everything else. Aye, the time will come when a man in this America shall not suffer for not being a seeker and lover and defender of the dollar. <laughs> my faith in man is as strong as my faith in God, and as strong too, perhaps, is my faith in the future world-ruling destiny of America. To these united states shall the nations of the world turn one day for the best model of good government. In these united states, the wellsprings of the higher aspirations of the soul shall quench the thirst of every race traveler on the highway of emancipation. And from these united states, the sun and moon of a great faith and a great art shall rise upon mankind. Aye, in this new world, the higher superman shall rise. From his transcendental height, the superman of America shall ray forth in every direction the divine light which shall mellow and purify the spirit of nations and strengthen and sweeten the spirit of men. In this new world, I tell you, he shall be born, but he shall not be born an American in the democratic sense. He shall be nor of the old world nor of the new. 
he shall be my brothers of both. The book of Khalid, for all its flaws, remains an unjustly neglected work, having a message of continuing relevance even at the dawn of a new century and a new millennium. The influence it exercised on other Arabs is more important than the successful conformity to a literary form in which Rihani did not feel entirely at ease. He was nonetheless a master of several other forms, and of all his works, his three travel books perhaps best encapsulate his special talent as a writer and communicator. As the first modern traveler in Arabic literature, he revived a venerable tradition of travel works established by Ibn Jubair, Ibn Battuta, and others. And in English, he proved a worthy successor to men like T. E. Lawrence, Burton, Doughty, and Thessica. As I mentioned before, his books on travel were Ibn Saud of Arabia, his people in his land, and around the coasts of Arabia, and then finally the last, which was Arabian Peak and Desert, Travels in Al-Yemen. In 1921, Rihani published two works that demonstrate his prowess as an essayist and poet in English. The first of these was The Path of Vision, a collective of essays illustrating basic differences, especially in philosophy and way of life between East and West and between Christianity and Islam. Its central message is a heartfelt plea for each to learn from the other and for the development of a harmonious relationship between the two. The book contains several references to Emerson, Thoreau, and Whitman, and much of it is imbued with their transcendental philosophy of the unity of existence, in particular, man's oneness with nature. In Citizen and Yogi, Rihani asks, What avails it to know that I am free if I cannot realize this freedom in a definite, specific existence? But can it be realized wholly by a revolt only against a hierarchy or a state? It depends upon the nature and scope of the revolt. If we are concerned in breaking the fetters that are fastened upon our bodies and souls by external agencies only, we are doomed to failure. But if we become aware of the fetters which we, in the subconsciousness of centuries of submission, have fastened upon the spirit within us and strive to free ourselves of them first, then we are certain to triumph. For freedom of the spirit is the cornerstone of all freedom, and this can be attained only by realizing its human limitations and recognizing its divine claim. It might be said, too, that freedom is to spirit what gravity is to matter. It is inherent in it and limited, yes, fettered by it. To know and recognize this truth is to rise to the highest form of freedom. This acknowledgement of the limits of earthly existence shows us an intellect rooted in reality and one inclining to practical solutions, illumined by intuition, intuitive vision, rather than by the escapism found in most contemporary Arab verse. One is reminded of Emerson in his journals, if you cannot be free, be as free as you can. Another English work of Rihani's, Rihani uh, is uh, published in 1921, entitled The Chant of Mystics and Other Poems. It was a collection of his verse with an essentially spiritual Sufi message, longing for mystical union. The following lines from the title poem expresses one of the essential features of the Sufi way. They also echo the main theme, not only of the path of vision, but also of many other of Rihani's writings. 
We are not of the east or the west. No boundaries exist in our breast. We are free. Nor crescent, nor cross, we adore. Nor Buddha, nor Christ, we implore. Nor Muslim, nor Jew, we abhor. We are free. Echoes of Jalaluddin Rumi of Ibn Arabi are quite evident in a poem like this, as they are in other, <clears throat> other poems of Rihani in this work. Rihani's finest poetic over in English, however, is undoubtedly his translation of the 11th century Milton of Arabia, Abu Ala al-Marri. It is, however, pertinent to ask, why did Rihani choose to translate al-Marri rather than other representatives of the great poetic tradition of Arabia? Clearly, he felt a strong personal affinity with this most rational and intellectual of Arab poets. But his reasons ran deeper than that. Rihani himself elaborates in his preface to the Rizumiyat of Abu al-Ala. Abu al-Ala, besides being a poet and scholar of the first rank, was also one of the foremost thinkers of his age. Very little is said of his teachings, his characteristics, his many-sided intellect in the biographies I have read. The fact that he was a liberal thinker, a trenchant writer, free, candid, downright, independent, skeptical withal, answers for the neglect on the part of the Mohammedan doctors who, when they do discuss him, try to conceal from the world what his poems unquestionably reveal. I am speaking, of course, of the neglect after his death, for during his lifetime he was much honoured. We find in the Luzumiyat his dominant ideas on religion, for instance, being superstition, wine, an unmitigated evil, virtue, its own reward, the cremation of the dead, a virtue, the slaughter or torture of animals, a crime, doubt, a way to truth, reason, the only prophet and guide. We find these ideas clothed in various images and expressed in varied forms, but unmistakable in whatever guise we find them. Any assessment of Amir Rihani's achievement remains incomplete without addressing the problem lying at the center of his life, the problem of his religious beliefs. Being religious, says the theologian Paul Tillich, is being ultimately concerned. And by such a definition that ignores sectarianism, all great writers are religious. Homer, Virgil, Dante, Cervantes, Shakespeare, Goethe, Dostoevsky, and Yeats, among others. Being religious in this larger sense does not ensure greatness in the arts. More than that is required. But greatness in literature cannot be determined by literary standards alone. We must invoke measures relating to humanity's highest moral aspirations. Thus, a great writer's religion is inseparable from the powers that magnify him or her beyond others. Rihani's religion was an earnest belief in oneness in its fullest sense. The oneness of God, the oneness of nature, the oneness of man. It is the old Sufi doctrine of the unity of being and the redemptive power of universal love that Rihani calls the greater love. In his will and testament, written in September 1931, Rihani declares his faith in the unity of all religions. He says, I, I am a believer in the unity of religion, for in its mirror I see reflected the images of all prophets and messengers Confucius, Buddha, Zoroaster, Socrates, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and Baha'u'llah. They have all come from one source, and their faces merge and unite and become reflected in one unified face, 
a most holy symbol representing the face of God himself. I counsel you to adhere to unity. In theoretical terms, religion is that luminous living link between man and his one and only God. In spiritual terms, religion is the joy derived from discovering without mediation the mysteries that lie behind this unique link. In practical terms, religion is, above all, the recognition of the divine truth spoken by whoever <coughs> has taught a single letter taken from the book of love, of piety, and of charitable deeds. It is also in following the example of these teachers and emulating them in thought, word, and deed, each of us attaining this according to his capacity. For God has burdened no soul with more than it can endure. We shall end this uh, <clears throat> lecture with uh, a poem that comes uh, in the book of Khaled entitled To God. It will be read in, it was originally written in English, but Rehani himself translated it into Arabic. So we shall start by reading the English one, and it will be followed by Mr. Raad reading it in Arabic, and this will bring this lecture to an end. But before I end, let me say this. Whatever one's philosophical and religious persuasions, one must salute so tireless a seeker as Rihani, a great writer who fought for a world conception, whose ideas about God, religion, and man's salvation show whatever else may be said, a remarkable consistency and unity of purpose. It is greatly hoped that there will be renewed interest in the important contributions Rihani made to developing cultural links between the Arab world and the West. For history shows that the Arab influence on Western civilization has been crucial, fueling at vital stages the progress and development that has led to the creation of the modern world. By preserving, honoring, and perpetuating the words, deeds, and unique humanitarian approach that Rihani employed in the cause of East-West reconciliation, we will be performing a vital service, a service which the Temenus Academy has done for us tonight. It would be true to say that Arab Renaissance that began in Lebanon more than a century ago, after decades of intellectual stagnation, looked toward the West as if claiming an ancient debt. For human civilization is a progressive process in which the past lives in the present and the present in the future in which the past lives in the present and the present in the future, and in which all races and nations participate. Amin Rihani, whom we honor today as our teacher and pioneer, was a formidable intellectual force in shaping and revitalizing the modern Arab intellectual renaissance. And his enlightened and common sense views remain an important legacy for Lebanon, for the Arabs, and indeed, for the Western world. To God. In the religious systems of mankind, I sought thee, O God, in vain. In their machine-made dogmas and theologies, I sought thee in vain. In their churches and temples and mosques, I sought thee long, and long in vain. 
But in the sacred books of the world, what have I found? A letter of thy name, O God, I have deciphered in the Vedas, another in the Zend Avesta, another in the Bible, another in the Quran, even in the book of the Royal Society and in the records of the Society for Psychical Research, have I found the diacritical signs which the infant races of this planet Earth have not yet learned to apply to the consonants of thy name. The lisping infant races of this Earth, when will they learn to pronounce thy name entire? Who shall supply the vowels which shall unite the gutturals of the sacred books? Who shall point out the dashes which compound the opposite lodestars in the various regions of thy heaven? On the veil of the eternal mystery are palimpsests of which every race has deciphered a consonant. And through the diacritical marks which the seers and paleologists of the future shall furnish, the various dissonances in thy name shall be reduced for the sake of the infant races of the earth to perfect harmony. Antoine. إلى الله عبثا عبثا طلبتك في أديان الناس عبثا بحثت عنك في سراديب عقائد الناس ولكني لقيت في كتب العالم المقدسة بعض آثار سماوية دارسة فلقد توضح لي حرف ساكن من اسمك في الفيدا وحرف في الزندفستا وحرف في الإنجيل وحرف في القرآن أجل وفي كتاب الجمعية العلمية الملكية وسجلات جمعية المباحث النفسية بعض الحركات التي لا يحسن الطفل البشري أن يحرك بها الأحرف الساكنة من اسمك وأن لأمم الأرض وهي في طفولة الحياة أن تحسن النطق به من يهدينا إلى تلك الهمزات همزات الوصل الإلهية التي تجمع بين الكواكب البعيدة المتقابلة في أطراف الأفلاك السماوية فقد خطت على نقاب السر الأبدي كلمات ومحت ثم خطت ومحت كل أمة من أمم الأرض أدركت حرفا من هذا الطلسم العظيم لكن الحركات وهمزات الوصل لا بد أن يأتي بها علماء المستقبل لتحيي جمودا في أحرف الكتب المقدسة الساكنة وتبعث فيها سلاسة الماء والهواء وتزيل اللكنة من لسان هذا البشري الطفل ومن قلبه well, um, uh, Our end was in our beginning The beginning is in the end We started with the Arabic, we ended with Arabic And I think at the end of this uh, talk May I also express my deep and profound gratitude to our very charming and able chairman, uh, 
who or chairlady or chairwoman or chairperson, doesn't really matter. We speak about the unity tonight, so you don't mind whatever I call you. The, she has been really a very important uh, uh, force behind uh, this lecture and organizing it. But we owe Stephen Overy a very special debt. Uh, these are the tireless, invisible workers behind the scenes who keep the Temenus Academy uh, the machine going, you see, uh, the vision and the, 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 the spirit and all that comes from there, but it has to be channeled, it has to be worked. And the Temenus Academy, of course, as you all know, is a charitable organization. We don't make money out of all this, but of course it is a charitable organization that needs the support of people who, who those who believe that the work that we are doing is of value. And I think there is nothing more important in today's world than to promote the message of unity. What can one say after such lecture? I think words are totally superfluous. But I would like to thank on your behalf and on my own behalf, Professor Bouchoui, for having allowed us to revisit the renaissance of the Arabs, the psyche of the modern Arabs. And I would like to also thank him for having guided us through the magnificent landscape of Rouhani's vision in the unique manner of Temenos and the tradition of Temenos. He has again excelled in allowing us a glimpse into the world of universal reality, into the world of the imagination. Thank you.